can't wait for the next episode to drop. Be one of the first to listen to Ozzy Confidential a day early only on Himalaya. Go to your app store, download Himalaya. That's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A. And then follow Ozzy Confidential once you're there. I remember a girlfriend at the time saying, uh, there's blood in your underwear. Why? Go, oh, I must have scraped against a nail. So here you are. It's Ozzy, confidential. My name is Eugene S. Robinson, the host. So we're going to do something special to show you that this is an actual no holds barred deep dive into stories that are untold, unheard. I'm going to do something different. Usually I'm getting other people's stories, but for you, special for you, it's going to be my story. I'm in a band called Oxbow, a cursory, not even a cursory glance at your internet will tell you that if I'm known for anything, it's a certain kind of volatility, which brings me to a friend, John Mitchell, used to be at the LA Times, We're talking about an article I wanted him to write, and the guy is goading me, remembering when I was 14 and not nearly as adept at handling the reins of volatility as I am now. I remember you lifted weights when you were 14. <laughs> you were you were making much progress. And I lifted weights as a hobby, but I competed right then. And my first competition in New York was National Gym Association, uh, Teenage uh, uh, New York, Mr. Teenage New York, when I started to go through puberty. And, you know, some guys go, oh, I was so horny all the time. That wasn't the issue for me. The issue for me was this really weird kind of sense, overpowering, testosterone-fueled sense of invulnerability. I think they call it a hysteria passio. I grew up in New York, so standing on the subway platform, and as the train started to come in, I started to have this increasing obsession, combined with standing on the edge of the platform, that I could throw myself in front of the train and physically stop the train that I had, I, I had through my weightlifting ministrations, I had developed enough physical power to actually, now trains come through the stations, express trains, speeding. I knew I couldn't stop a speeding subway train, but as it, as it cruises to a stop or starts up, I was convinced. And I actually had to force myself to stand back from the edge of the platform so that I, it, it, it was a very strange, weird, like Octave Mirbeau in the torture garden talking about these overpowering obsessions, compelling. It was like that. Uh. 
based on what I know now about testosterone, I was probably peaking and then I start lifting weights harder and I probably just leveled it out. I didn't have that continued obsession with throwing myself in front of the train beyond my senior year. But of course I left New York. And then um, I came out to California and uh, I, I went to Stanford, but I, I didn't compete at all during Stanford. I started lifting after Stanford seriously and started competing again after. I was doing insane things. I remember I was big into glandular extracts. <laughs> I don't know where they got them. I don't know what was in those pills. You could get them at health food stores. I remember feeling dizzy a lot. <laughs> the idea was that you had to you had to make gains. It was a, you know it was a burgeoning uh, supplement industry, and pumping iron had come out in the late seventies, and you know nobody had figured out at least who was seventeen or eighteen, like I was, had figured out that probably it wasn't just supplements that got them there. There hadn't been a lot of high profile, well publicized bust for. Performance enhancing drugs. I was a purist for so long that um, that it, it always feels kind of strange for me to talk about uh, steroids, which is what we're talking about. I was surrounded by them when I was training in Brooklyn. I was surrounded by them at my gym in California. I trained down at Venice Golds. It was, I mean, I'd figured out by the time I'd hit my 20s that Arnold and all the pro bodybuilders were taking stuff. Fell in love with the, with the weight training or with the feeling of being strong and being big and all that, and I wanted to win Mr. Universe. I wasn't interested, not at all, not at all interested. And then something strange happened. I competed in the, in the Mr. California uh, Natural, right? It was supposed to be a non-steroid-aided show, which it, it was comically not. I finished last. But prior to that, some friends said, well, you're going to be in San Diego. You're going to be close to Tijuana. Go across the border and get us some stuff. So they gave me a bunch of money, and they gave me a laundry list because you could legally buy steroids there. And so the the, the show was drug-tested, but it was a, a polygraph. So as I'm sitting there in some kind of like Abu Ghraib type room in San Diego with the athletic commission, I have a fanny pack full of these steroids, which I had no intention of taking. And they're asking me if I had ever taken them. And technically I had not taken them. Right. So um, I answered and passed the polygraph. Um, but something about coming in last place, I don't say it unseated me, but I started to think about the long view and I go, you know, some of these guys, they're going to be gone tomorrow. You know, I'm a lifer. I'll be lifting. I've been lifting weights since I was nine years old. I'll be lifting them when I'm 25, 30, 35, 40, 45. It's going to be a lifelong thing. So steroids, what seems to be like a quick gain for some people, could be mixed in like a healthier supplement. And on the drive back from San Diego, started to have these thoughts. And I and because I'm a hopeless, endless researcher, keep in mind this is well in advance of any internet. Uh, I worked at a defense company then and went into the LexisNexis network, which was part of the DARPA thing, and did all this research on steroids. And I developed, like uh, you talk about Mitt Romney, I developed a folder. Binders full of uh, women. A, a steroid research folder, which I still have to this day. And, and made what I thought was an informed decision that I was going to take steroids. I had been a purist for so long that I didn't want to be publicly identified as a guy who used. I was initially I wasn't ready for that yet. It's weird. Well, I could like like why? Who who would care? I was surrounded by, but that became my thing. Like I was the guy, like the, the guy who wouldn't. And in the punk rock community, straight edge was a thing. Punk edge. Punk edge. Punk edge. 
non-drugs, straight, clear mind that I was going to do this thing, you know. Part of wanting to be kind of sotto voce about it was that I would I would do it myself. And keep in mind, it's not the, the, the needles that you use for steroids are intra, IM needles, intramuscular. They're 18, 20, 22 gauge. They're really giant needles. There's a catch, right? Uh, and the catch is... You have to inject it into a muscle, so it has to be a large muscle grouping. Now, I know guys who shot themselves in the quadricep, and but these are guys who had already used and were big and had lots of muscle around the knee. Um, or the thigh, they had a, I somehow couldn't do that. Um, and, but the most common was the buttocks. But it's hard to turn and do and see if you're alone, but I just decided that that was going to be the best place. And... Um, I remember a girlfriend at the time saying, uh, there's blood in your underwear. Why? Go, oh, I must have scraped against a nail. But, you know, I mean, at that point, I still was in denial sort of about wanting to publicly be identified as a steroid user. And we're talking now, <clears throat> 80, 88. And I know this because I was in the worst movie of 87, Leonard Part 6, with a bunch of bodybuilders who were using and wouldn't talk to me about it because they knew it's like, kid, don't do as I did, do as I say, fly the straight and narrow. And those guys all to varying degrees ended up having, not all of them, some of them ended up having serious problems connected to what some would say were personality deformations that came as a result of steroids. You're walking along, you see a guy in the hole, you go, oh my God, how did you get in that hole? And the guy goes, well, I put my hand on that branch there. And you go, what branch? This branch, you put your hand on that branch. He goes, yeah. And I put my other foot on that other branch. You what, this foot? Yeah, and I jumped up and down really hard. Really? And then what happened? You know, and then you fall and you're in the hole next to the guy, you know, and that's, you just, you have to realize that there's certain things. And I, I've recognized the cycle now with younger people have come up to me and start talking to me about, yeah, boy, I would, I don't think I would ever do steroids. And that's always, the, that's always a poker tell. I don't think I, you don't think you would ever, huh? Really? That means you think you would ever. <laughs> so I, I went through the same, you know, as probably the life cycle of a steroid user denial and uh, knowing it's not good and then figuring, you know, if the science were faster on this, this would just be another supplement. You know, the rationale, and then, of course, taking it. And then once you take it, your vantage point is no longer reasonably trustworthy. <laughs> because one thing that nobody ever talks about when they talk about steroids, about how fucking great they make you feel. They don't want to talk about the fact that one of the things that was so compelling about it was that on the at least on the upward portion of your cycle, you feel like Superman. Mental acuity through the roof. I mean, if you're prone to being creative, super creative, um, four hours of sleep a night, no refractory period. You could, you know, lots. I mean, and you just good natured. And people said, well, what about the roid rage? I, I personally think it's like alcohol. It magnifies, you know, they're bad drunks, but these are kind of bad people. It magnifies who it is that you are. It's all in the down portion of your cycle where you start to have weirdness. But on the up portion, it was... Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. First week, you would have a regime of half a cc, maybe some orals, pills that would go with it. You would decide. Uh, my personal favorite was one called Sustanon, which was a mix of four testosterones. 
propionate, enanthate, and I can't remember the other two. And the pills I decided were not only worthless, but bad for you because your liver attempts to metabolize them all at once, whereas the injectable, it passes the liver several times, so it's not as hard on your liver, which is one of the big problems. Week two would be like one cc, right? And no pills, or sometimes people would combine it with pills if you had good ones, like Anabar was a good strength pill, I remember. And I was taking this one called Decadoroblin, which was supposed to be one of the healthiest, safest, as these things go, steroids ever. But again, nobody tells you about the head game. They don't mention that ever, 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 ever. Unless they're talking about it in the negative. I mean, the thing is, it's like if you've ever watched a movie, The Invisible Man, the chemical makes him invisible, but it also makes him crazy. Suddenly I realized the power I held. The power to rule. To make the world corroborate at my feet. You know who The Invisible Man is, Doctor. Where is Doctor Griffin? So, all of a sudden, I hearken back to that subway thing and I remember there I had written an article about a bodybuilder out in Sheepshead Bay who in the midst of this kind of megalomaniacal steroid thing had convinced himself that he could stop a car like me with a train except he had a bunch of enablers and all these guys were all taking steroids in the common parlance juicing and they follow him he goes I'm I can stop a car and they go out to whatever that is the highway that snakes through Sheepshead Bay BQE or something like that and they sat on the guardrail and he waited and he jumped out into the lane in front of a car and technically if you want to be philosophically consistent he did stop the car broke both arms and broke a leg and was hospitalized but that car did stop not the way he thought you know and uh, so I, I remember that there had been stories uh, about guys who had gotten ill, but most of the people who got badly hurt on steroids were from other things. It was like from diuretics to lose water weight during a contest. Uh, I uh, And I figured these guys were just doing it wrong. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body budget, and lifestyle. Just go to stitchfix.com slash Ozzy, that's O-Z-Y, and tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick five items to send right to your door. Then you try them on, pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping exchanges and returns, always free. There's no subscription required can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. Get started now at stitchfix.com slash OZY and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash Ozzy to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash OZY. A why? I had one roid rage moment where I had to, these multiple cans of protein powders because you're taking tons of protein, and I had this old-fashioned can opener, so it left a really jagged line on the inside of a can, and the dog had, had a big mastiff at the time, had shouldered his way into the house, and I just started screaming at him, and I threw the can at him, and, and it, it cut through all four of my fingers, and uh, which was a real problem. One, I didn't like abusing my dog. Two, now that I had my fingers almost cut to the bone, it was gonna, it was gonna bite into my lifting time. Would you become pathological about your lifting time? Because if you're taking steroids and not lifting, it's like money out the window in your in that steroid-addled state. 
And uh, so I, I said, look, I need to control myself. I can't be one of those guys. You know, I knew guys like that, that, that I couldn't be one of those guys. And so, um, but what was happening is, um, <laughs> what was happening is, but what is that thing that Tyson says about everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face? I literally got punched in the face by steroids. I didn't account on the fact, and there was nothing in the source material that says, once you take half a cc and one cc and two cc, your ability to cap it at two and a half cc is going to be non-existent. Moreover, you're going to want to go, well, if two and a half cc is tough, maybe three and a half cc. What about four? What about five? What about six? six, I mean, you know, this, I don't want to even say uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon, but it seems to me a particularly Western thing of just more, bigger, more. And so I ended up, I remember trying to crazy glue together two IM uh, the bodies of the syringes, the tubes, so that I could fit more rather than take two separate shots, which I'd have to sacrifice the actual needle part. I was trying to crazy glue together two stems so I could have a super long needle and get six cc's. Um, I didn't have enough insight at that time to realize that um, deviating from the plan was going to be problematical for me. It used to be a TV show called The Six Million Dollar Man. And he had like a bionic leg and a bionic arm. And he would do all these amazing things. Like he could run 60 miles an hour. But they never dealt with the the issue of what happens to the non-bionic leg if the bionic leg is running 60 miles an hour, right? And this is where I was. My body was used to getting these chemicals that was making it do phenomenal things. I was deadlifting over 600 pounds. I had gone from a body weight of 190 to 265. I, I, I was bench pressing 315. That's three 45-pound reps and a 45-pound bar in the middle. F- close grip benching for eight to 10 as a warm-up, squatting almost 500 pounds. I was a really big, strong guy. But of course, they, you've heard about it. They talk about a weird dysmorphia. I had no sense of how big I was, really. I just knew I wanted to get to 300 pounds. That's what I wanted to do. And... If it was four cc's or five cc's or six cc's at that point, that's what I was going to do. And then I have a weird relationship with my father. We only talked once since I turned 19 and he came out to talk to me. Uh, Maybe I was 30 at that point, 29 or something. And uh, I said, look, I'm not breaking my schedule for you. I got stuff to do. He goes, well, what do you want? So I'm going to the gym. Come with me to the gym. We can talk while we're at the gym. He was flying through or something. And we were going to work out together. And it was just this, this great moment where uh, I had a completely soured on the prospect of having a father, but even though we had had problems. And so we go to the bench press and uh, I put on uh, 315 pounds. And he's like, I've, I said, he goes, I can't do it. I said, yeah, I know you can't do it. <laughs> it's for me. He goes, well, I can't spot you. I got, you know, just stand here. Just. I don't, I don't need you. So you measure your hands out from the ends of the plates. And usually when you do a bench press, you hold your arms like you're doing a pushup. So your arms are shoulder width apart. They're pretty wide, but I I measure it out and then I measure it again so that now my thumbs are touching in the middle and I'm doing what you call a, a close grip bench press. Most people can't bench press 315 pounds anyway close grip where your, your wrist bent at the middle and your, your, your hands are only thumbs width apart. 
it's incredibly hard. And I lowered it to my chest and I can, and I'm watching him from the bench. He's looking down at me and I'm watching him and we're eye contact. And as I get down to my chest, I pause and then I knock out eight to nine reps and I'm just looking at him. And, uh, as I finish, I hold it at the top and I go, you can just guide it back in. And so he pulls it back to two inches into the, into the upright struts that hold it. And, uh, he goes, I stand up and I'm still looking at him. I stand up and he goes, uh, I, I, I can't do this. And I go, I, I know, let's take off some weight for you. And it was a great kind of <laughs> inver- inversion moment. Uh, and then, of course, we went back to never speaking to each other again. So that was the last time I spoke to him. You know, if if you grew up on ABC after school specials, you you might think that that was a good moment, but that was that was a steroid fuel moment of rage, you know. And, and what I was hoping was transmitted in that moment was, old man, you don't have a chance, <laughs> you know. Or like the line from Cape Fear, you know, I can outthink you, I can outfight you, I can out, you. <laughs> you know, lift you. I can outrage you, I can outthink you, and I can outphilosophize you. I have exceeded you in every way. It wasn't a general good sign of mental health, but it was, in terms of my personal development, probably a really good sign. I was getting over wanting to be a son. Ah, God. This is the part where I'm supposed to be really candid to encourage others to be candid. But um, I remember the girlfriend I had at the time, there was a resistance to telling her because not only was your athletic performance through the roof, but sexual performance also through the roof. <laughs> it's so cheesy. It's like, you know, I asked one of my bodybuilder friends, I go, hey, do you let people know that you're on or do you just let them think you're this way always? He was like, I'm this way always because I'm always on. And I go, well, I'm not always on, but I feel like I should totally disclose. And he's like, ah, no, nah, don't do that. So there, <laughs> there were, uh, well, there were reasons why people were not really looking too hard. <laughs> like, gee, you've gained 10 pounds. I mean, everybody saw me taking protein. And there was a guy who I knew who was on a similar thing. And he, I asked him once, and the weird thing is, this is all completely illegal, but a large number of the people doing it that we worked out with were all cops. So it was a very interesting way of, I mean, this is prior to Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and the home of the steroid era of baseball. And these guys were taking growth hormone and all this other stuff, allegedly. But you had this weird detente with cops. So you'd know this guy, you know, was a cop and he goes, you're looking pretty good. I go, yeah, because getting about, what, 15 pounds in the last month and a half? Yeah, about that. He goes, what are you, what are you? I would say cybergenics. And so that became, that became, yeah, me too, cyber. Genics too, and there was a thing called cybergenics, and that was pretty powerful, but it wasn't doing 25 pounds of raw weight gain. No, that's not cybergenics. But I never competed again after I took them because the purist in me didn't want to. I still, at a certain level, thought it was cheating and didn't want to do it. Didn't want to do it. So, uh, but also something else happened. When I started taking steroids, bodybuilding seemed to be 
aspirationally seem to be too small. This is, this is the key to kind of the mental deformations. It seemed to be, it seemed to be kind of a parochial greatness. And I was, I was, I was looking for masterful life greatness, like things, you know, I was going to be the best singer and the best writer and the best, not just good, the best, the best anybody had ever seen. I mean, it was a kind of madness, right? And, um, I kind of mad this, but I look back and I was super productive during that period. Published a lot of magazines, did a lot of interviews, did a lot of work, <laughs> won awards. <laughs> Not just athletic ones, man. anything but athletic ones, you know. Um, and I don't know that I make a one-to-one connection, but if you're being productive, then some of that stuff is good. That might happen. And we were all, I mean, it was, nobody ever talks about the euphoria. I mean, look, you might get, feel a certain euphoria on angel dust, but you're not able to really physically back it up. But this was just, it, it, we were euphoric. And, but it was a cyclical euphoria, right? You, you for that up portion of, of your cycle. And uh, the down portion was routinely terrible. So all the heaven that we had all been enjoying, these bodybuilders, bouncers, uh, you know, barbell boys that I knew, when we would cycle at the same time on the down, I mean, I remember going over, pulling guns out of people's mouths because they were suicidal. Myself, remember sitting, watching some commercial for Scrooge. It was a Bill Murray movie. And at one point, they're talking about putting a little love in your life. I'm sitting there sobbing like a baby. And it wasn't even the movie. It was a commercial for the movie. Or just even worse, right? And I'm like, my God, love in your life. Ah! And then at that point, I realized, I think I may have mismanaged the down portion of the cycle. <laughs> But that was a very dangerous couple of weeks because I was having, uh, like in, they say in uh, Apocalypse Now, I was having ideas that were increasingly unsound. Next to that is uh, ideas, methods. Became unsound. And uh, I was involved in a relationship then that was probably not the best of all relationships. And I was thinking, ah, I gotta, I gotta settle down. I gotta get serious about life. We, me and her, we could get all tied in. And then, of course, about two weeks, twelve to fourteen days afterward, when your body starts producing uh, testosterone again, your perspective comes back. But you know, during that two weeks, I could have said and done a lot of danger. I could have asked three or four people to marry me. You know, who, who knows? It, it was, it was a, a cavalier attitude about things that I, I wasn't prepared and wasn't in the source material. <laughs> the thing is, this community also included women and women bodybuilders who take steroids very frequently. The changes that they encounter are irreversible. And there was this one friend of mine and she had gone out with a friend of mine and they broke up and she was in the gym and we were training together. And she had this very kind of effective way, this kind of breathy thing. I, I remember at the time, I mean, it was in my 20s. I think, oh, this is kind of sexy. It's kind of breathy thing she's doing. But we were actually training together. So it was annoying after a certain point. I, I, I couldn't hear her. And I just said, I'm sorry, what did you say? What did you want me to put on? We were changing the weights on the thing. And she goes, 
put on an eighty five. And I, I realized that it was an accommodation that she had made because her voice had dropped an ox. So as long as she kind of whispered, she could maintain a higher voice. But when she raised the volume of her voice, it was, de- and that's like forever. I'm sure if I were to find her today, she sounds. So it was, so I was surrounded by examples of people who, I mean, mostly the women who had physical changes that they were never going to be able to come back from. Um, and, and indeed, you know, I, I got paranoid enough about some of those changes that I actually sought out a doctor. <laughs> I went through several till I could find a doctor who in my mind was good enough. Some might say crazy enough to do the surgery that I'd wanted done, which was, um, when you have men who have too much estrogen in their system, get this thing called gynecomastia, fat starts to form behind the, the, the nipple in the chest. And, you know, you start to develop kind of secondary female sexual characteristics. It's a, it's a common thing. It happens naturally, but it happens a lot when you see people who abuse steroids. So I said, I, I'm going to get around this because once I'd started steroids, of course, the thing I told me about that, told myself about that first cycle was I just did it wrong. Next time I'll do it right. So as a, as a, as a prophylactic measure, I want all that stuff, all those, all those glands taken out. The doctor said, well, we can't do it if, if after it happens, because then technically it'll be cosmetic. So why don't, what if, if you were to have a biopsy done, we could say maybe it's possibly precancerous and we could pull it out that way. I go, cool, let's do it. So insurance pays for it. So I had to burst into the laboratory and it was like to get my mammogram. But at least now when women talk about mammograms, I know what it's like. It's unpleasant. And, uh, and they did the surgery and uh, they cut open my chest and uh, like use those, those claws that they have in amusement parks to get stuffed animal toys to reach and pull out all the glandular matter and cut it off. Took my nipples, put them back on and sewed them back on and put drainage tubes in my chest, which I wore for three weeks. So that was, I mean, if you smoke a joint, three weeks later, you're probably not remembering that joint you smoked. <laughs> three weeks later, when I have tubes in my chest, I kind of remembered that this happened because I want to take steroids. So I was, I was in at this point. I was committed to the lifestyle. You, you see, now sitting here like this, it makes me sound crazy. <laughs> it made you feel good enough that it was an actual effort to stop. And I have to say the circumstances under which I finally decided to stop were what, you know, alcoholics call you have these moments of clarity. And it was a pretty potent one. We were all racing the 300. And I say we, I'm talking about me and maybe nine other guys, 10 other, 12, maybe 12 tops. And I got a call one day, a couple of things happened simultaneous. One of the guys who was um, the, one of the dealers would get his big shipment and he would come to the gym and announce that he had had it. And then he, like Johnny Appleseed, would go from house to house to deliver it. Um, and one day he got into the post office, got the shipment, went from house to house. And the DEA followed him and busted every single person that he delivered to. Lastly, him. Somebody had gone over to his house to pick up a shipment, was sitting there as a guy in, this, in the blue blazers, kicked through his door. They come back to the gym and they say, 
so-and-so got busted and everybody who had purchased from him or used from him interrupted their workouts. It was literally like a, like a run on the bank, the opposite. Everybody grabbed the gym bags and you could tell exactly who was using because they were all just <laughs> out to go home. It's not like, like Coke where you, oh, I'm going to flush it down the girl. Nah, this stuff is hard to get, mostly to hide, give it to your girlfriend, put it at her house or, or do whatever. So there was a massive bust, right? People were looking at real people friends were looking at jail time. And that was a pretty potent call. You know, if ever there were signs, that was probably a pretty good sign. You know, that was a good time to stop. But, um, but people do start to know that you're the guy who knows guys. So I didn't buy again, but I made introductions again to people who would, I mean, guys I knew who were hardcore users and they were not going to stop. I remember asking one guy, I go, he was like a elder statesman. And I was like, I'm going to ask him, like, how do, when I was up to six cc's, like, how do I know? I haven't read in many cases of overdose. How do I know if I've taken too much? And I ask him and he goes, well, I know I've taken too much when I, and he pulls his shirt up and yeah, he's got the, you know, the ripped abs and stuff. And he pulls his shirt up and he goes, when I feel my liver and he points to, and I, for the first time notice something poking out of right under his rib cage and uh, he just when I feel it when I see it start to swell through my shirt I back off that was another sign <laughs> there's never any why you never ask somebody well why would you smoke a joint why would you drink a glass of wine sometimes you just do these things just to do them you know it's life on planet human you know, why would you why would you do that to yourself? You don't know how many times I've actually heard that, you know, in regards to tattoos or people do strange things sometimes. And there was nothing quite as strange as this. <laughs> yeah, you made it through that one. All right. Next up next week, we've got a Swedish royal, former beauty queen, speaker of three languages, world renowned Nietzsche scholar, Ph.D. holder. And in a weird, unfortunate twist of fate, maybe, crack whore. Welcome to one Ms. Josephine knockoff on the next edition of Ozzy Confidential. Ozzy Confidential is produced by, who else? Me, Eugene S. Robinson, and executive produced by Robert Kulos. And this episode was sound designed, edited, and mixed by Jamie Kahn and Nick Johnson. For more Ozzy Confidential, check us out on Ozzy.com. That's O-Z-Y.com slash confidential. We publish editorial companion articles on Ozzy and photos, videos for every single story. So check them out. Go to Ozzy.com slash confidential. That's O-Z-Y.com slash confidential. And you can see behind the scenes. You can learn more about the stories we tell and even become an official OC. Where you'll be kept uh, uh, in the know on all things Ozzy Confidential. And if you want to get in touch with us, learn more or just generally vent, hit us up at uh, confidential at Ozzy.com. We'll send over a t-shirt if we dig what you got to say, good, bad, or ugly. Or maybe we'll get too lazy to do any of that. Thanks. Thanks.